You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. Great to be back again and uh, see you all and share fellowship together. And I hope you've been enjoying the series in Luke's Gospel, uh, where we're looking at God's big plan for the world. Today we're looking at faith and warnings in the passage that's just been read to us. Um, a few years back, uh, a farmer I know was spraying his crops uh, with one of these massive boom sprayers that you see there. Uh, in fact, I was visiting that farmer yesterday. And uh, <clears throat> one of his workers uh, was driving this big machine and uh, he was moving it from one paddock to another. And uh, as he's going through the gates into the next paddock, he heard this massive heart-stopping crunch and the whole thing came to a halt. Straight away he knew uh, what the problem was. Um, He'd made a terrible blunder. Uh, He'd forgotten to fold up the boom. Uh, And uh, in a few seconds, $600,000 worth of machinery uh, came to a crunching halt. The machine was meant to look like this uh, when it goes through the gates. They fold those big booms up. And, of course, that guy found out that uh, a 42-metre-wide boom won't go through a 5-metre opening. Uh, And there's a lot of pain and regret as they uh, try to fix the wreckage. Uh, The point is that the width of gates matters, doesn't it? Uh, Whether you're going to catch the metro train, if you're this wide and the gate's that wide, it's not going to work, is it? Or whether it's trying to get into your bathroom or moving stuff into your apartment that doesn't fit into the lift or it doesn't fit through the door, it's not going to go in there. And this boom gate's another example uh, of that. In our passage today, uh, Jesus speaks about the entryway uh, into his kingdom, uh, that perfect new creation... Uh, that he's preparing uh, for his people. Just a bit of context, Jesus, in verse 22, says he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Uh, So Jesus is continuing his tour uh, through towns and villages and preaching and healing and so on. Uh, But he's on a journey, and it's a journey that started in eternity past. Uh, but it was announced to us in Luke's Gospel in chapter 9, uh, where it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus actually is on a journey. He's set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go there, to end up there. He's got one job to do, and that is to make the sacrifice that will open up the door of heaven. Uh, for you and for me. So that's the context. So we're going to dig into this through three big questions. So how wide uh, is the door to heaven? Who will be let in there? And how much does Jesus want you to be there? So let's look at these questions one at a time. How wide is the door to heaven? So here a question is put to Jesus. It doesn't really matter who asked it, so Luke doesn't tell us. But it's an important question, and that is about how many people will be saved. People have all sorts of ideas about this, don't they? 
Uh, some people say that the, the gate to heaven is as wide as the human race. In the end, everybody's going to get in there. Um, others say, well, no, the gate to heaven is as narrow as me and my wife, and I'm not too sure about her either, um, <laughs> or it's as, as narrow as our church and everyone else is going to be lost. Um, and, of course, there's all shades in between that. Uh, actually, it doesn't really matter what you and I think or what matters, actually, is the one uh, person who has come from heaven who's actually seen the gate and knows what the gate is. It's his, what he teaches that matters, and that's the person who's answering the question here. That's the Lord Jesus. Uh, so here's the question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, it's not surprising that this question comes up. Uh, firstly, because the common belief amongst the Jews was that uh, the gate to heaven is as wide as the Jewish people. So all you had to do to get into heaven was to be born a Jew. Uh, now, Jesus, of course, challenged that smug belief. Um, at the end of chapter 11, uh, when he's pronouncing woes on the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the lawyers, he says this, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So here's Jesus answering that question. He's actually challenged that and saying to the people that the Jews believe are on the top of the stack, the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he's saying, well, you guys aren't going to get in. You refuse to go in and you're stopping other people. So it's not surprising that people say, well, whoa, will the people who get in there be few? So here's Jesus' answer to the question. Uh, he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. That word strive there uh, is literally the word that we get our word agonise from. Jesus said, you need to agonise over this question. Strive. Uh, if there's one thing that needs to occupy my attention and your attention for the rest of our lives is this one. Will I be in God's kingdom? Yep, we look after our property portfolio and our family and stuff like that, but Jesus, this is the one question you really need to get right. Will I be in God's kingdom? Am I among those who will be saved? Will I escape the inevitable consequences of my blunders, my shortcomings, uh, my sins against God and against others? Jesus says the door's narrow. In Matthew's Gospel where he says a similar thing, he says there are two ways. There's a narrow way that leads to life and there's the broad way that leads to destruction and heaps of people are going that way. Uh, so here he says to strive to enter by the narrow gate. Jesus makes an observation as only he can as the judge uh, that there'll be many who won't get in there. Um, now, what's the reason that they aren't able to enter? Well, the answer's in the next section, uh, in verses 25 to 30, where we start to look at this second question of who will be let in there? Um, <clears throat> what Jesus clearly says here is that there'll be people who are in and people who are out. Um, verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, 
So he's saying there'll come a time uh, where that door will be closed, either when Jesus returns or, uh, and takes his people to be with him or when we die. Either way, it's a deliberate action of the master of the house we see here. The master rises up and he shuts the door. Uh, and of course, Jesus is the master of the house. Uh, the end of history won't come about as the result of some human action. You know, someone pushes that button that <laughs> sets off the nuclear bomb. Now, what we, what, what we see here is actually that Jesus himself gets up. And the opportunity uh, for responding to him is gone. Uh, it'll be done by the master of history himself, the Lord Jesus. And the reason uh, people won't be able to go in, as Jesus said, some won't be able to go in, is because the door's shut. It's not like that they uh, don't have the ability to get in. The door's shut. And then he says, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Now this tells us that there are that the people who are let in are not the people who demand to be let in. Uh, the master of the house, the people say, let us in. And he says, I don't know where you come from. That's a frightening scenario, isn't it? These people think they know Jesus, and Jesus says, I don't know you. Uh, you know, fair enough, if you come to my house and knock on my door and I look out through the window and, and I say, sorry, go away, I don't know you, you'd probably go on your way thinking, poor old Sam, he's lost the plot finally, doesn't even recognise his friends. <laughs> and you say, OK, I'll go and get on with my life. But actually, if it's the Lord of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ who says that to us, that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a huge thing, isn't it? And that's what he's drawing attention to here. Uh, verse 26, they begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. So these people who bang on the door, they start to give reasons why they should be let in. They claim some connection with Jesus, the master of the house. Uh, they were there when he came to town. They had a meal with him. But Jesus says, I don't know you. I guess it's like that awkward and embarrassing moment, you know, when you go some front up somewhere, maybe to the bank or the council, you know, or, or for a job interview and you put your application in and you're a little bit concerned about how it's going to go. Uh, and you turn up and lo and behold, the person who's receiving you is somebody that you've met in the past. Uh, and you think, oh, well, you're relieved. This is going to go well, uh, you know, because I, I, I sort of know this person. And you say, oh, hello, Mary, it's great to see you again. And Mary gives you a blank stare. And uh, it's very obvious that she has no idea who you are. Not only that, but Mary now thinks that you're sort of playing around with the truth. You're pretending that you know her <laughs> when she actually doesn't know you. Um, <clears throat> these people think that it's their kind of connection with Jesus that will give them a free pass on the day of judgment. Uh, they claim to know him. It feels like they have some connection with him. Uh, it, I guess it's a bit like I think I know Queen Elizabeth uh, because our daughter handed her a bunch of flowers 30 years ago in Sydney when she was coming out of church. 
And the Queen took them and smiled at her. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure the Queen never said, oh, yeah, I know Sam Reeve. He's the, he's the father of that little girl that gave me flowers 30 years ago in Sydney. I'm pretty sure she handed the flowers to her assistant and smiled sweetly and went on her way. You see, the question is not so much do we think we know Jesus. That's important. But the much more important question is, does he know us? Will he recognise us on the day of judgement? Having some awareness of Jesus is a pretty flimsy basis to claim entry into God's kingdom, isn't it? And yet, somehow we think that the things that we do for the church or for Jesus or whatever will actually earn us credit with God. Uh, that's a very common idea, isn't it? I think it's actually the way our hearts are wired. We think if we do something for God, then he owes us one. Um, <clears throat> what are some of the ways that we think we might deserve a place in heaven? Giving money to charity, I suppose, or coming to church, being a good person, being nice to other people, being a pastor, a missionary, or whatever. I think, well, surely that must count for something. On the day of judgment, God says, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Um, but those things actually are never good enough, are they? No matter how well we do them, we always fall short, don't we? That, that's what the word sin means. That we, we actually fall short of God's perfection, which is what we need to get into his heaven. And even if we do them really, really well, I know from my own heart that our motives are mixed, aren't they? You know, there's a tiny little bit of that in there, you know, that now people will think well of me if I do this. <laughs> Isn't it? It's there all the time. It is with me anyway. I don't know about your heart. Let me say to you, if you are relying on being in church today to help get you into heaven, your faith in that is misplaced. Being in a church does not make you a Christian any more than being in a garage will make you a car. It doesn't work that way. And what happens next actually is really sobering. In verse 27, Jesus says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This is really harsh, isn't it? Must be the hardest word for anybody to hear. Depart from me. It's not just go away from me into some sort of oblivion, but Jesus describes what happens where uh, these people are sent. And then in the next few verses, he says, In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and so on. It's a picture of utter devastation, of hopelessness, uh, and never ending regret. And gnashing of teeth is symbolic of rage and anger. Now, what are the reasons for this? Jesus outlines them here. There are three of them. Firstly, they see their heroes and the people that they claim that they're descended from, and they're relying on that to get in there. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Jesus names them there. They see them in there uh, and also the prophets. Now, the significance of that is, as Jesus says later on, that they persecuted the prophets or their forefathers did and killed them. And yet they see those people in there that they refuse to listen to, who brought the word of God to them, they see them in there. 
And they and their ancestors ignored those prophets and now they're ignoring Jesus, God's son. That's the first reason they see their heroes in there. Secondly, they are cast out. So they are bearing the consequences of their own sin, which is inevitable. If we refuse to accept what Jesus has done in taking away our sins and justice must be done, then we're going to have to bear it ourselves. There's no other way. And thirdly, worse still, they see people that they despise who are there. You know, people are coming from the east and the west and the north and the south. So they thought it was their little country that was going to be saved. And here they see those dreaded Gentiles, those non-Jews, coming from everywhere. And they're not just hanging around the edge in heaven. They're sitting down and reclining. A symbol of fellowship with, with Jesus, with the master of the house. Jesus, of course, has foreshadowed this, hasn't he, by eating with tax collectors and sinners. And, of course, they hated him for doing that. And, and criticised him. So, so far there's a lot about those who don't get in, isn't there? That's what Jesus focuses on here, actually. So who is let in? Uh, Jesus actually doesn't answer the question here, but I don't want you to go away not knowing the answer to that question. Uh, in, we find it in other places in John's Gospel where Jesus talks about, actually, the door. And he says, I am the door. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. It's in John 10. And he says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So the answer to those questions, how wide is the door and who will be let in there? The answer is the door's as wide as Jesus. He is the door. And who will be led in there? Those who go through him. Trust in what he's done uh, to take away their sins, do with their sins and to let them into heaven. Trusting in him alone. So in verse 30 he says, Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Uh, By the way, this should make us very wary of pontificating about who's going to heaven and who's not. Uh, we need to be very careful saying that because what Jesus says here, actually it's going to be a bit different to to the way we think. I think he's also talking here about uh, the rewards in heaven. We know there will be rewards in heaven and uh, I think what he's saying is some of the most unlikely people are going to be very close to the throne and some people like me will be a bit further away. Um, He's saying, look, this is all in God's hands. It's not up to us to say who's in and who's out. And, and what rewards people are going to get and so on. Um, <clears throat> so that leaves our third question. How much does Jesus want you to be there in the last part of the passage? Uh, the Pharisees, who themselves are increasingly keen to get rid of Jesus, uh, they come and warn him uh, to leave that area. Uh, they say, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. There's a bit of politics going on here, I think. These guys are pretending to be on Jesus' side. Uh, But they're kind of fraternising and colluding with Herod, who wants to get rid of Jesus as well. 
Uh, and of course, we know in the final analysis they do conclude with the they collude with uh, with with Pontius Pilate and others to get rid of him. <laughs> anyway, Jesus is no fool; he's aware of what's going on, and uh, he says to them, "Go and tell this cunning manipulator—that's the meaning of the word fox—that uh, what you see that this long what what he's doing." Uh, casting out demons, performing cures today and tomorrow and so on, what he's doing indicates that he's the longed-for Messiah, the one who will rescue God's people. And that instead of playing power politics, they need to recognise Jesus as the one who is opening up the gate of heaven. Uh, In verse 23, Jesus nevertheless, I go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So we're back to where we started, aren't we? Here's Jesus continuing to go on his way to Jerusalem. And he's telling these guys too, and Herod, that actually all this is proceeding according to his timing. Neither Herod nor the Pharisees are running this program. They're not going to bring it to an end. He is. He is deliberately walking towards the cross so he can open the way to heaven. And then in verse 34, we see Jesus' heart and his longings for them to know him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. How much does Jesus long uh, for these people to come to him? These people who are opposing him, who killed the prophets in the past. But Jesus, like a hen that gathers the chicks underneath, particularly at night time, where they can be protected, where they can be warm and where they can be nurtured. And they don't come to him. And it causes Jesus great grief that they refuse to gather under him and recognise him for who he is. A few chapters later when Jesus reaches Jerusalem, he actually weeps over this and over the city. It brings him to tears. But here he says, Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's saying the people... He's speaking to here, outside Jerusalem. They won't see him again until he comes to wind up everything uh, and separate the sheep from the goats. And on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will finally see who he is, the master of the house, the door, the one who opens the way uh, into God's place and is the way into God's place, uh, living under God's rule. And he longs for them then and for us now to recognise him and bow and confess him as our Lord and Saviour and live under his rule. Now Jesus personalises this whole discussion uh, about how many will be saved. Uh, At the beginning they say, well, will will the people who are saved be few? And Jesus addresses them uh, directly. And in the end, uh, and I mean that literally, the end of our life or the end of the opportunity to respond to Jesus and to put things right with God, when we 
appear before Jesus and we're judged, it will be personal. We will be called to account uh, for our lives. And that's what Jesus puts before his audience here. Uh, He confronts them with the distinct possibility they won't be saved, that they'll be shut out, that they'll live their life of eternal regret, uh, paying the price for their own sins, because they weren't willing to gather under Jesus. He longs for them to do that. He longs for you and for me to do that, to come under the protection of his sacrifice for us. That when the wrath of God uh, is displayed from heaven, that we, we know that Jesus has already taken that on himself. That's what we celebrate when we share communion together. That Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And that through his death on the cross, the wrath and the anger of God that's against my sins and yours was taken by him. Friends, this is the most crucial question that you and I will face in our whole lives. How will it go for us on that day uh, when we stand before Jesus? What will you say if Jesus says to you on that day, why should I let you into heaven? What will you say? If it begins with something like this, well, I've done this and I've done that, it's not going to work because it will never be good enough. And like that guy driving that tractor, if you try and get into heaven with all your self-righteous baggage, you're going to crash at the gates. That's what Jesus uh, is saying here. Uh, We need to let go of our own self-righteousness, our own making our own way apart from Jesus and not trusting in him. Uh, You see, to trust in your own goodness... Uh, your own righteousness is actually to say to Jesus what you did on that cross was not necessary for me. And that's why Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers. Because actually they have fallen short and we've fallen short. We've done evil. And the greatest evil is to reject God's loving advance to us uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we might be rescued. And... So Jesus warns us today of the consequences of rejecting, not being willing to come to him. Uh, Friends, don't be among those that he longs to gather under his wings, but you're not willing. It leaves one question, doesn't it? How do we come to him? The writer of this song put it very well, and we'll finish with this. He says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, saviour, or I die. What great promises are in that, aren't they? If we're naked, he's going to dress us. We are naked before God. He sees everything. And he will give us that righteous robe of Jesus' righteousness. Uh, Helpless look to you for grace. We need grace, don't we? We need God's mercy. Uh, 
Foul I to the fountain flow. Wash me. We need washing. And Jesus promises to do all of that. Friends, let's take time. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. If you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, today's the day to do it. And just to come to him and say, Lord, I realise my righteousness is not good enough. I need what you have done for me uh, on that cross. Let's take time to do business with God. If you're already a believer, come back to that point. And I'll do it as well, where we're just trusting in Jesus and what he's done and not ourselves and what we do. Let's take time to do that and then I'll lead us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much that you put things so clearly. You love us so much that you clearly outline what's up ahead and how we can gather under you and under what you have done for us through your death on the cross. Uh, Lord, uh, we admit that we are people who have fallen short, uh, that we don't have the credibility to, to live in your perfect kingdom. And we thank you so much that you loved us so much that you recognised that problem and you came and you did something about it. So pray, Lord, that each one of us might know that our our security and our salvation uh, is in you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And thank you for your offer to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the promise is that you will do it if we confess our sins. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'll go out into this week in the power of your spirit uh, to live lives that are dependent on your grace and your, on, on your mercy. Not only that, Lord, but that we will tell others uh, of this way uh, of salvation. We pray all this for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.